welcome to whoever is watching us here. Um, we're uh, coming together to kind of mark the launch of a long in production um, idea, which is the Vermont Backcountry Handbook, which is a collaborative effort of many of the folks you are going to hear tonight. Um, I'm David Goodman. I uh, am the author of the guidebook, Best Backcountry Skiing in the Northeast. So I'm gonna moderate here and pass this around. And I thought I would just kind of set the scene for why they're even, where the idea for such a book even came up. Um, I remember about a decade ago, uh, it was the newly created Vermont Backcountry Alliance was <clears throat> really kind of uh, a bit of a radical move. Backcountry skiers, uh, as skiers know, never come together, always avoid one another, always avoid any attention. That's the whole idea, right? And so as a result, um, there really were no rules. Um, there were informal rules about private trail cutting, you know, in Stowe, we talked about, you know, never disturb the canopy, should never be visible, no power tools, which was kind of a, a way of making sure you couldn't do too much damage too fast. But it was all very, you know, uh, random like that. And as so it was an era of essentially rogue trail cutting. And this became, as backcountry skiing became more popular, this became more and more problematic. Um, and this was probably best highlighted in 2007 uh, in what I would call an act of environmental vandalism. Um, a completely out of control cut was made on Big J in Northern Vermont which um, you know, essentially clear cut a large area on a mountain that actually needed no help. It was already skiing just fine. But these were two local guys who were skiers and that opened everybody's eyes to what it looks like if there's no rules. Um, to those guys, just seemed like they were making a nice ski trail. Um, to a lot, most of us, it was, we were sort of, we were pretty horrified. So anyway, fast forward, the conversation um, moved and this was also the beginning of conversations going on with two of the people who I'm gonna turn it to now who were very instrumental in another part of backcountry skiers coming out of the shadows, out of the pucker brush and starting to communicate not only with one another, but also with um, the state and the US Forest Service, all people we had been running and skiing away from for a long time because it was just this, you know, everybody was trying to see no evil. So um, this, this is really kind of a milestone moment. And then it really was captured by what was then called RASTA, now called uh, the Ridgeline Outdoor Collective, um, actually collaboratively beginning to create trails. So with that, I'm gonna introduce um, Angus McCusker and Holly Knox. Angus is a founding member and is the executive director of Ridgeline Outdoor Collective, a nonprofit chapter of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association and the Catamount Trail Association. Ridgeline Outdoor Collective is an outdoor recreation-based organization serving the towns of Rochester, Randolph, 
and surrounding towns in the Upper White River Valley. Angus is also a founding member and executive director of the Vellamont Trail Collective, and is currently working with the Vermont Huts Association in a joint venture to create what will be one of the longest hut-to-hut -hut trail networks in the U.S. The Vellamont Trail is a proposed mountain bike trail connecting existing mountain bike trail networks across the length of Vermont, from the Canadian border to Charlemont, Mass. And through his work with these two organizations over the years, Angus has worked closely with private landowners and many public land managers, including the U.S. Forest Service, the state of Vermont, and local municipalities. Holly Knox has devoted her 25-year career to public service and federal land management and currently serves as the Recreation Program Manager for the Green Mountain and Finger Lakes National Forests. As a supporter of collaborative partnerships and publicly managed recreation opportunities, Holly works to engage outdoor enthusiasts and projects that support the creative economies of small rural towns. She is driven to get people of all ages and abilities outside and enjoying their public lands. So, um, Maybe Holly uh, and Angus, uh, say a little bit about how this whole effort got started um, and how long this has been in the works to create a guide to doing this. I can start. <laughs> I was just gonna say, uh, I know it's, it's, it's amazing how far, you know, it's been 10 years um, since, I guess, our first very first meeting. Honestly, it was just over beers. Uh, in Rochester, <laughs> um, yeah, in a conversation, just kind of led from one thing to the, to the next, um, and it was probably the right time too. You know, we're having conversation. The Forest Service was starting to have conversation, um, so just the the thought of it. You know, what can we do um, to further you know opportunities and doing a responsible way? Um, we've seen it happening with mountain biking. You know, working with landowners, responsible can guarantee almost some results um, when you're working with land managers and owners. Um, so yeah, it was just a really uh, neat opportunity and um, and, and to pass off to the land managers, um, not only uh, the Forest Service, I mean, there, there was nothing, there was no um, guideline, no handbook, um, nothing, you know. Um, I know the Forest Service probably could speak more to this, but they had to do a lot of research, you know, asked all of the other districts all over the country, have you guys done anything like this? And no, nothing. Um, so a lot of the stuff we had to do with proposed, you know, they could have said, no, we don't have anything. It's not part of our protocol. Um, and, you know, so hats off to the Forest Service and then Forest Park and Rec as well. Um, and also the fact that in, you know, our central Vermont area, we had a very uh, generous landowner who had donated land to the Forestry Foundation, Paul and uh, Sharon. Um, and we had a good um, a guy named Zach Freeman who lived in that town in Braintree and had good connections and um, approached the landowners and say, hey, this is what we're thinking of doing. Would you be willing to, uh, you know, kind of pilot this idea? So Braintree Mountain Forest was kind of the first um, ever, you know, we mapped it um, and that was also a good opportunity, you know, to kind of learn trial by error, not really a lot of errors, but it was the first. Um, and then, you know, that led on to future projects and conversation partnership with the Catamount Trail Association. Um, but yeah, I'll let Holly speak more to the Forest Service um, aspect of that. Sure, thanks Angus and David. So. I think from our perspective, it had been 
years in the making of people coming to us saying, hey, you know, my friend and I, we want to cut some lines here. And we didn't know how to wrap our heads around it, but we also knew that when you had one or two people coming to us, that doesn't make a very strong, long-lasting organization or partnership. And so because we were receiving repeated requests, you know, having a man on staff who was going back for his master's degree, we asked him to look at what backcountry management like might look like. He was a backcountry skier himself. And at that time, you know, Rasta was starting to come online. It was very fortuitous timing where we said, let's look at a, a potential project together. We asked them, bring us kind of the largest proposal you can think of. Where might we want to go? And then let's narrow it down and see what's going to be most appropriate. And I think for us, it was really incredible to see the groundswelling of momentum that Rasta brought onto the table where it wasn't just an organization that was willing to work with us, but they were willing to bring the manpower. They were willing to bring people online with saying, yes, let's stop cutting and let's think about the ecological impacts and do this the right way with our public land managers. And they really helped put that out to the public because there were people that weren't very excited that we were you know, starting to publicly manage their private stash. And I think for us, the timing of creating this book or handbook, I should say, where we're, we're asking people to have a consistent language or we're asking people to understand perspective of public land managers while also knowing what we have as far as expectations for project development, it really at that time was just kind of starting to formulate and then it's just grown over the years and we're really grateful that it's gotten to this point that we are at tonight. And, and I should point out this is, um, you know, we're dealing with some of the unique quirks of working in the Northeast, which is, um, you know, I just came from out West and I don't have to create trails out there. <laughs> they just look up, see a gorgeous hillside. And so this is not a paramount concern, but, you know, we have to create what we ski for the most part. So this is very much, you know, going to be, it's not surprising that it's been driven here in the Northeast. Um, but I think it will, uh, we can speak to that later. I think it will still have a lot of implications for um, everywhere in the country. But let me turn to um, Catherine and Luke uh, to talk about the creation of the handbook. So Holly and Angus are driving this movement of this collaboration uh, first ever in the country. Um, and then it falls to somebody to kind of give this some shape in the in terms of a handbook. So uh, first, just to introduce you, Luke O'Brien is a forest recreation specialist for the Vermont Department of Forest Parks and Recreation. He works out of the St. Johnsbury District Office and helps manage public access on state lands in the Tri-County Northeast Kingdom region. Since 2017, Luke has worked with the Northeast Kingdom Backcountry Coalition, or NEKBC, to develop and manage the backcountry ski zones on Bartlett Mountain and Mount Hoare in Willoughby State Forest, um, which is a wonderful place to ski. Uh, encourage everybody to check it out. Catherine Wrigley grew up getting outside, even if it was just in her suburban backyard. After earning a BS in natural resource ecology from UVM, she learned to wander with purpose as an employee of several trail-centric organizations across the country. She found herself back in school in 2013, studying the intersection of ecology and humans on the landscape, completing a master's thesis project on the impacts 
of backcountry skiing on forest structure and wildlife habitat. She now works as a forest recreation specialist for the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation at the Essex Junction office with a focus on managing recreation access in Camel's Hump State Park and the west side of Mount Mansfield State Forest, both areas that contain iconic historic backcountry ski spots. So um, Catherine and Luke, um, talk about the creation of a manual and where, how that began and what you've done, what you've had to do to do it. You wanna start Luke? Sure, sure. I, I, I do wanna um, echo what Holly and Angus said earlier that I, I think, um, my involvement with, with FPR and with the Catamount Trail Association in this project um, was really well-timed. And um, as much as the uh, creation of the, the project down on the uh, National Forest, I think generally speaking, there was a real pent-up demand for backcountry skiing. And uh, I think it, it, it touches on a, a bunch of areas, uh, whether it's your book, David, uh, that had been in production for many, many years, uh, directing folks to these really uh, unique backcountry tours, uh, folks being interested in lost ski areas of New England, um, these legacy CCC projects throughout New England and the Northeast, where folks were getting out and discovering these old projects. And, and some of the origins of, of, of uh, you know, a lot of our our, our existing ski areas today on, on Mansfield or Burke or, or wherever it is. Um, and of course, I was uh, indoctrinated early on by Alan and Mike's really cool Telemark Tips, a classic book for any backcountry skier. And uh, and that that inspired me to uh, to free the heel and, and get into the backcountry. And I think um, as more and more people discovered that passion and discovered all these disparate opportunities, um, it was really directing us to to do something about it. We we did see a rise in, in cutting on state lands. And I think it took a lot of courage from our, our public land managers to to take the step to to actually embrace it and to try to bring it uh, above ground and, and to to work with the backcountry community. So so I was fortunate enough to to start with FPR uh, one year into the Willoughby Backcountry Ski Zone project. So a lot of the heavy lifting of the the planning and the coordination had already taken place, and um, after coming back from a, a a great trip up to the Chick Chocks, another fantastic backcountry area, I was really inspired to to see what the what the Willoughby Zone could could become, and um, and of course building upon a really successful Nordic trail system up at Willoughby. So. So that combined with with the work down in the Forest Service, and then as you mentioned, you know this 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 demand and you know a, a rise in, in in illegal cutting, I think really drove a demand for for something that could help us um, work with the backcountry community, but also work with folks within our own agencies who frankly didn't understand um, what the demand was, who the users were, why they were going into the backcountry, and. Um, you know, I take a holistic approach where I feel like people have been on the land for, for thousands of years and people have been skiing for thousands of years, but never have we had to deal with, uh, you know, the, the environmental terrorism that you mentioned, Dave, up on Big J. And I think that was a real threshold moment where um, we realized that there was uh, 
too much demand and not enough resource. And, and that really spawned us into, into action. And so I think the groundwork had been laid for this project, for this document. And it was really a matter of, of reaching out to, to the folks who had been doing studies in the uh, National Forest, out in the Adirondacks, um, you know, wherever we can find information and, and bring it together into one source that kind of creates a common language for both skiers and land managers. And I, and I really hope that it, it creates a format for skiers and land managers to, to speak that same language and to, to kind of pull in the same direction versus uh, in a, a more traditional oppositional uh, approach. And Catherine, of course, you, you can speak to how we actually pulled all that information together and, and, and put it into book format. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was actually in grad school when Dunn was in grad school. And so we had, and we were both studying backcountry skiing. So we would talk sometimes, which was fun. Um, and in I think when I graduated, I can't remember when I think all of us or some of us on this call or in the family boxes right now, um, were in a backcountry ski working group um, where we were talking about this together. Um, and I was just, uh, Jessica Savage was nice enough to extend an invitation to me to sit on that, even though I wasn't yet working at FPR, but just because of my interest and in research that I had been doing for grad school. Um, and that's where I was introduced to the ideas, some of the ideas that were generated by Brian Moore and Amy Kelsey and Kelly Alt for sort of um, something that Catamount Trail at the time had been thinking about in relation to a backcountry ski handbook. Um, and then out of that, I think FPR also was doing stuff. And obviously, um, Ollie uh, and Don were doing a lot of work around ecology down on the forest. Um, so when Luke definitely was kind of like, we really, we found an old word doc in, in you know, one of our folders because we were talking about backcountry skiing and it was something FPR had tried in 2017 and we were like there's all these there's all these disparate pieces we know there's this need um and so we we asked if we could start a working group and we were given the the green light um and we pulled together um a bunch of folks from that agency of natural resources so Luke and I work for the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation um and the agency of natural resources also houses the Department of Fish and Wildlife um, and the Department of Environmental Conservation. So we sort of pulled folks from everywhere, especially leaning on the skill set of the recreation uh, managers and FPR. Um, and then Forest Service and Catamount came in and had folks on that as well. And we just started pulling together all of these pieces of inf information that already existed, putting them into a document. This did happen in 2020 lockdown, which is maybe why it got done, because <laughs> we had time to focus. <laughs> on a project because we couldn't go in the field. Um, and so, yeah, it took, I was writing the other day um, to a colleague about it and I realized we had nine people on our working group um, who helped us with sort of the first couple drafts. And then by the end, I think we had over 40 more people get eyes on, on the document. We sort of would do like a draft get feedback and then sort of extend our circle of, of who was checking it and making sure all the specialists we thought um, should see it, got 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 to see it. Um, and Luke and I, we had, I just remember at one point we'd gotten back 
the, the sort of the bulk of the edits. Um, and I think there were like 400 comments and a thousand uh, like track change edits. And we, we both just were kind of like, okay, okay, let's do this. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I love the nerdy like background part of like, we pulled information from a lot of different people and a lot and a lot of people who have been thinking and working about this for a long time and just brought that out into the light. Um, and that's why I'm like so excited about this product because uh, as everyone else has described, there's a need for it. And I'm glad we were given the opportunity to like present that and put it out there. And I can't wait till we get emails with more edits because I know we will. <laughs> so. Well, let me turn it now to Matt Williams, uh, the executive director of the Catamount Trail Association. Through his work leading the CTA, Matt oversees the protection, maintenance, and development of the Catamount Trail and leads chapter development for the CTA. And when not donning one of his many CTA hats, he can usually be found exploring from his home in the Mad River Valley on skis or a bike. Um, Matt, Say a little bit about why you think this uh, handbook is important. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's interesting. You know, it's so great to, to hear again the, the the stories and the background. And um, I I think it's so important because um, you know, if anything, all those trends have just accelerated. You know, we um, we all know about the surge and outdoor recreation um, during COVID and, and the increased numbers in, in sort of all outdoor sports, but certainly that's been the case for backcountry skiing. You know, we, we were seeing growth in the sport that was on an exponential curve even before, um, before COVID and, and that just sort of hit the accelerator. And so, you know, and then people go and they, they ski these amazing places. They go to Brandon Gap, they go to Willoughby, they go to some of the other managed zones that have been opened up over the, the last few years and they say you know how do I do that in my community how do I um how do I um how do I make that happen close to home and you know it, it's always been a really and I, I hope always will be a very community driven sport um it's a sport that builds community um and and every zone is sort of reflective of the place that where it is um, but I think it's it's also needed a platform um, to really grow, and I think this handbook starts starts to do that through the common language that that people have referenced, right? Like if you want to build a hiking trail or you want to build a mountain bike trail or even a cross country ski trail, and you go to a land manager, they know what you're talking about, right? Like there's a there's a hand there's a there's a set of best management practices. There's a there's a manual for it. You can you can you know talk big picture. You can talk specifics, and of course, none of that existed for for backcountry skiing. Um, it didn't it didn't exist for for gladed zones. And so, um, you know, I I think this Luke sort of talked about you know the need for it internally at agencies and and frankly for private landowners as well to sort of understand hey what is, what is it that these people are really talking about? We're not talking about a ski area, you know. We're not talking about. Um, you know, clear cutting swaths down the side of a down the side of a mountain and, and clearing trails in the sort of traditional sense. Um, but it's also important for communities to understand, you know, what it really looks like to build an outdoor recreation asset in 
2022, 2023, right? It, the, the number of times I hear, I got into this, I, I just wanted to build a trail. I didn't know I was going to have to sit at my computer and answer emails for three years to, to get there. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's just not that simple. It's complicated. There's there's a lot of considerations. Um, there, there are a lot of people and a lot of pressures on the landscape, um, ecological pressures, um, infrastructure pressures in towns around parking and and you know toilets and facilities and and traffic on back roads and all these things and and um, it's important to balance those and so one of the things I'm really proud about with this handbook is that it really is um, you know a start to finish toolkit for communities that want to that want to do this um, that want to want to see this kind of recreation in their backyard and it walks them through the process and how to build community support how to get landowners land managers involved. You know, it's not, it doesn't give you a prescriptive answer for every aspect of it, but it it helps, I think, give people, no matter how they're coming to um, the project, um, a set of questions to answer, and it starts to point them in the direction of some tools they can use to, to inform you know, answers to those questions. And it allow, gives them some flexibility to make it their own, um, to make it fit their community, um, but it gives a framework. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it, it ultimately it comes down to people. It comes down to the communities. It comes down to the the land, you know, the particular landscape and terrain. But I, I think that um, I'm hopeful that that framework and the the steps and the processes and the the tools that this handbook lays out and the the collective wisdom that's that's um, in it um, will help support communities in that and and um, sort of provide the platform for um, continued and and expanded growth of of this, this sport throughout Vermont. And hopefully, you know, we'll talk about it, but hopefully beyond as well. Um, Holly, one of the really remarkable things about the story that always strikes me is that when you began this uh, conversation with Rasta uh, of collaborating between a community group and the Forest Service to create these backcountry ski zones, that you were really kind of blazing new ground. Um, Say a little bit about what has been unique about that collaboration and also where you've seen it. You know, this has now moved over to the White Mountain National Forest, is having similar conversations with groups there, namely Granite Backcountry Alliance. So um, just say something a little bit about the uniqueness of this collaboration. Sure. And I do just want to build on what Matt said for a second first to say that. This framework, it really has, since Brandon Gap's inception of that project, we have had the Adirondack Park Agency, the White Mountain National Forest, other public land managers reaching out to us saying, how do you do this? How do you convince leadership? How do you help them envision what it looks like? And I think that this framework that Matt referenced, I just, I can't thank Luke and Catherine enough. I think that I wish that we'd been able to hand this to people at the time and say, this, this will help you. Um, but in regards to the uniqueness, I will say, you know, I'm not sure how often we take the time to truly appreciate how unique it is to have the community of rec collaborators that we have in Vermont. I sit on a number of national teams and I hear people talk about you know, the importance of the collective impact model. That's a, a real, I don't want to say a buzzword, but I do think it is, or a buzz phrase. And it makes me smile, smile because I think it's almost business as usual for us here. And we needed that community to not only take on this handbook, 
but really to help develop that ground swelling of support to move from the era of rogue trail building to a community that community that embraces you know, publicly managed projects and and giving up your stash and understanding that for the greater good, you're going to have projects that aren't just going to be for you know you and your friends to hide in the backcountry and um, cut what you want. So I think for us, it was a challenge taking on something that hadn't been done before, but it also gave us the the freedom to kind of design what works for us in New England mm. and what works for our communities. I think Matt said it right that no two projects are probably ever going to look the same. So I think that they all will be unique. Well. Um... Let's take two concrete examples. Um, the Willoughby State Forest Backcountry Zone, which was a project with um, the state of Vermont, and Brandon Gap. So maybe since Holly, you've teed up the Brandon Gap story, if you and Angus can maybe just say something about the lessons learned that, you know, so when these outside folks are asking you, how did you do it and what have you learned? What do you say? Sure. I can start and then I'm curious to hear what Angus says. But, you know, I think for us, we knew that there might be a lot of eyes on this project. We knew it was an area that had some concerns from even our own internal staff. And so we wanted to make sure that we dotted our I's and crossed our T's. So one of the things that we learned when they um, initially had a practice day cutting, it wasn't on the National Forest, but I think everybody kind of got to the bottom after they had trimmed a potential glade and turned around. And we're like, ooh, like we made it a little wider than we thought. So I want to say that one of our biggest lessons learned was making sure that we had the project really well laid out. It was flagged, it was designed, it was not willy-nilly cutting. We knew you know, zones of exception. And we had crew leaders who had pocket cards that talked about what were kind of go, no-go zones. And they did not have loppers. They did not have chainsaws. You know, they were responsible for overseeing their crew and making sure that we were following it, all the directions that we said we would adhere to. So I think really paying attention to what the design of the project looked like so it didn't get out of control by having, I mean, gosh, our first workday, I don't know, Angus, 100 people maybe, <laughs> that can quickly spiral. So that's what I would offer. Yeah, the, the amount of interest, I mean, all eyes were on us. It was a little nerve wracking, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, everybody's like holding your breath. Is this going to like break backcountry skiing or is it going to make it better? Or, you know, thankfully, I think it did a good thing. Um, I think for everybody involved, you know, there you look at where we're at now. There are seven CTA chapters, if I recall, um, plus Granite Backcountry, plus Adirondack. Founders Eagles Association, they have their own backcountry zone they're working on. Finally, they've been at it probably longer than we have. Um, but no, it's, it's great. There were some, you know, lessons learned. Nothing that really, you know, like stuck out at me like, whoa, we did it really bad here. It was just little things like, oh, we could be more efficient. You know, this is why we have a handbook. Um, so we can kind of like provide some guardrails, essentially, you know, for me, a lot of it was working with land managers, the landowner and the land manager is their land, you know, the private landowner, if they own it, it, find out what their goals are, what are their objectives, what are their concerns, you know, wildlife, you know, uses, everything. Um, and land managers look at us as a potential partner. They want to know that we're going to be sticking around, you know, if we create this awesome backwardy zone and then kind of theater just appear, you know, 
don't want that to happen, but that's what they look at. Like, are we going to be able to manage this? Is this a, you know, so they have to look at all the, you know, really just a piece of the puzzle when it comes to land management, you know, recreation is a small piece. Um, the understanding that as a, you know, if you're looking to start your own backcountry community association, <laughs> you know, you need to be mindful of that. Put yourself in your land manager, your landowner's shoes, um, and you'll get you'll get somewhere if you are willing to do that and be patient. So, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, I think too, it was really important that it was an iterative process. We didn't, we went into this, this is a true partnership. We are listening to each other. And it's funny, I just thought of one small incident where we were sitting at Larry Strauss's table and I came with a mitigation that our botanist had said that you couldn't cut anything under five meters. And you guys were like, we can't cut hobble bush, we're walking away. And we were like, okay, well, let's go back to the botanist and we'll figure it out. And I think you really have to pay attention to each other and to understand the needs of each organization. Yeah, it, it's been really cool. They, I mean, we've got calls from Tyler Ray from Granite, um, several other chapters, CCA, like kind of especially asking what's the blueprint, you know, this handbook is that, you know, we have something and thanks to Catherine and Luke for really doing a lot of heavy lifting and Matt for facilitating, you know, this is something we can hand over. Um, you know, it's an evolving document, of course, you know, backcountry skiing will evolve. It always has been. Um, the climate's going to change, so there's going to be things we have to think about we can't even comprehend right now. Um, so it's it's a fantastic resource. So I'm super happy to see this. And um, you know, the backcountry skiing is you can ski everywhere. There's there's you know no shortage of powder. Um, you know, there are places where we should ski and places where we probably shouldn't be. You know, and that's okay. You know, we have to be mindful of that. Um, Luke and Catherine. Uh... If you could talk a little bit about lessons learned with the Willoughby State Forest Backcountry Zone, um, which was a state effort, um, say a little bit about that. I learned to not ski there with Luke on an icy day. <laughs> yeah, don't ski there on an icy day. Um, yeah, well, I, I think, again, you know, we had the benefit of um, the um, the cheat sheet that Holly mentioned, uh, you know, outlining the guidelines for how to develop a, um, a, a backcountry ski line um, and really the science that was developed, you know, by the Forest Service, you know, looking at the, the forest health and the forest canopy. So so we we really had the benefit of, of having that as a resource that was already developed. And, and it was just a matter of adapting it to our own purposes. But I will say the first day that we uh, cleared um first day that I was involved in a, um, a trail clearing project, there were three chainsaws and about 24 volunteers. And, and I, and I was all alone and I realized quickly that, uh, that was, you know, too many saws, too many people, uh, and we needed to, to slow down. And, and frankly, I think that the lesson that I have learned, and, and I think the NEKBC has also learned is that there is a, you know, a vision and then it's great to have a vision, but really, it's capacity based, and how much can you can you develop? How much can you manage? And I think there's always this push pull about um, clearing new lines or going to the next zone. Um, but you really have to be mindful of of what it is you've already developed. Can you care for it? Do you have the capacity to manage it on a year in and year out basis? And that has really set the pace for what we have done up at, at Willoughby. And um, 
the very first lines on Willoughby uh, were on the, the steepest pitch, uh, southeast facing, <laughs> um, with no skin track. So, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of zeal to go out and, and clear a steep line that everybody could, could, um, could tackle. But uh, I think over the years, um, there's been increased demand for, for more low angle skiing because there's frankly a lot of folks who want like entry level tree skiing um, and just to have a variety of terrain and also to set up a, a network that flows. So being mindful about the skin tracks, being mindful about where your entry points are and your exit points and how these routes intersect and and how they they they, they form a system. and. And Willoughby was a really fantastic um, location to to experiment with that. Um, it doesn't have the greatest aspect, and there are a lot of terrain challenges. There are an awful lot of rocks at Willoughby, um, so you can only fill so many holes with brush. But um, but it's a great testing ground, and, and I'm I'm really happy to see that the NEKBC has not just leaned solely on the state. Uh, they've got two other projects on private lands. So I think they're taking the lessons that they learned uh, at Willoughby State Forest and applying them on other places. And that kind of helps us all coexist a little bit so that we're not bearing the brunt of all of that backcountry pressure, uh, at least up here in the Northeast Kingdom. And, and as more of these chapters form, more of these zones get developed, I think folks are realizing there's, there's plenty to go around. Uh, the forest is going to be there. And then I forget who said it, but the, the iterative process uh, maybe you don't get the line totally right when you go out there and clear it the first time, but the trees are going to be there and you can always come back the next year and make revisions or adjustments. You just can't put the trees back. So, you know, I've always advocated for a, a real slow and steady approach and to be thoughtful and to sort of err on the side of caution and kind of see how the users embrace a line, see how it flows, and then you can revise it as you move forward year after year. And, and, and we've done that for the last six, seven years now. And, and uh, we're, we're still in a pretty good place. And I think, I think there's still potential to, to grow that zone, uh, limited potential, but, but definitely potential. And we're finding new areas and new interests. Catherine, what would you add to that about lessons learned from Willoughby? Well, I unfortunately can't claim too many lessons learned because I don't I don't get to work on Willoughby that much. I get to visit sometimes. Um, but I would just broadly say from listening to Luke, um, it's helped us frame how we think about um, projects that get proposed over in my district um, on on um, state land. And then also I really appreciated that Luke highlighted um, something that I don't think we've touched on yet, but just that idea of the cool part, the cool aspect of these intentional backcountry zones that have been really thought about and examined by a lot of people in different perspectives is that um, ability to create a space that is for like, be you know, from beginner to advanced, you know, you can create those lines that have a cliff drop or are super steep and tight. Um, uh, and then you can also have a spot possibly in the same uh, zone, depending on your vertical and, you know, the landscape um, that is more welcoming to someone who's just getting, just got their AT set up and is transitioning from practicing skinning up, you know, Bolton, that's where, close to where I am, you know, skinning up uphill uh, at a ski resort and wants to get into the backcountry. So I appreciate that you all are learning that a lot at NEK. Thank you. 
So it's cool. And and I think it's it's also worth noting. It's really hard to know where this whole world is going of backcountry skiing. Since I write these guidebooks every ten years, I kind of have a benchmark on what changes, and I can tell you that. Um, the difference between the 2010 and the 2020 edition. In 2010, telemarkers were the kings and queens of the backcountry. There was a smattering of other, you know, split boards and AT, but it was all telemark. In 2020, it is 90% AT and a smattering of others. So, you know, I sit here and I go, so what's it going to be in 2030? I never, you know, I couldn't have predicted that as a telemarker, I would be essentially like a dinosaur, you know, tromping across the forest um, in just 10 years. So it's very exciting to think that the things that, you know, you're creating are going to evolve in so many ways. Um, and maybe Matt, I'll, I'll kind of turn it to you to be our closer. Um, what do you kind of, you, in addition to being the director of the Catamount Trail Association, are part of National Networks, Winter Wildlands Alliance, and other groups. Um, what do you think others can learn from Vermont and from this handbook? Yeah, I mean, it, it is amazing to me that the calls that we get from around the country, and, you know, I, I've gotten... Um, calls from, you know, we, we talked, we, you know, I think you talked about it earlier, David, about how, you know, it is much easier right, to find terrain out west, but we still get calls from Oregon, from Idaho, from Montana, um, from, from people who, who stumble across the CTA site, or they, they hear about Brandon Gap, and they, they want to know more. Um, I, I think that um, there's, there's a couple of things uh, about this that um, I, I think, I hope will be impactful. One is that um, you know, Catherine and Luke touched on it, but I think one of the things that's driving interest from Western states in this type of management style is the desire to have more accessible backcountry terrain. Obviously, you know, Abbey Danger out West is a whole, a whole nother world and set of concerns that, that we have the luxury of not having to worry about as much in Vermont, at least. Um, we, we have to worry about them in the Northeast broadly, but not quite as much in Vermont. Um, and and so I you know some of the the creation of of lower angle lower elevation ski terrain out west that's a little more sheltered um, that that is a little more accessible for people who are new to the backcountry is certainly a desire out there um, um, amongst some folks and and so I think there are certainly lessons that that we've learned although the um, the cutting techniques and the, the um, silviculture concerns and the, the ecological and environmental concerns are very different there. Um, I think there are elements of the approach um, that are um, that people can look to out there and learn from and, and use to advance advance their own projects. Um, and, I, you know, I think broadly the the attempt in this handbook to create a really comprehensive approach to developing an outdoor recreation resource is, is just such a, um, you know, such a big conversation in the outdoor rec world right now. How do we balance environmental um, concerns and wildlife considerations with, with outdoor recreational access? How do we, how do we balance the, the stresses on community infrastructure with, 
with the economic development potential of outdoor recreation, right? And um, this this guidebook doesn't have all the answers to that by any stretch of the imagination, but it is an attempt, I think, to put all of those questions in one place and outline a process for working through them. Um, and it it helps, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, to sort of point the point the direction to some resources to help answer some of those questions. And so. Um, Though I, you know, I imagine and I hope that, you know, in 10 years, we feel like we have to revise it because people have built on it and the process feels outdated. I, I think it's, um, I hope it's a, a positive step in, in moving those conversations a little bit further forward. And, and um, you know, it's, um, I'm really grateful to, to everyone on this call and, and sort of within the, the backcountry ski community in, in Vermont um for being willing to engage in what are some challenging conversations around those those questions um so and, and yeah Matt, I mean the future is yeah go ahead sorry where can people find the handbook yeah well well we'll be putting out a press release tomorrow but it, it's on the um Catamount Trail Association website and it's on the Forest Service website and um Vermont Forest Parks and Rec and uh we'll be um coming out with a print run sometime this summer or, or early fall um, in at least at least in time for the Vermont Backcountry Forum in Rochester next fall. So um, if people want a, a hard copy uh, edition, they can can look for it there um, or in the fall. But in the meantime, it'll be available online and, and uh, we hope people check it out and use it. Great. Well, I think that does it. Um, thank you all for everything you do for the community and for making us all smarter and better stewards of our outdoors. Um, so uh, that does it for our little uh, forum here. Thanks so much for tuning in.